Hello, fans. This is Justin Cox. And Brad Williams. And we are the Between the Uprights College Football Show. Well, fans, uh, last week was honestly kind of a dull week, but there were a lot of hidden gems in the game slate. Um, there This weekend, there's going to be a lot of really good games. We narrowed our selections down to seven, and it could have easily been ten or more. Um, that just tells you what we've got getting ready to come up this weekend. Plus, we've got some interesting storylines to follow. So, um, without further ado, let's get to it. First off, in the primetime game on ABC, Wisconsin blew the hell out of Michigan, 49-11. to So, um... Do you think Harbaugh's done after this season? Honestly, you see, that's the thing. I don't think you can fire anybody in the 2020 season unless they're a complete crap beforehand. Because, you know, like Muschamp, for example, we're going to get into it later in the, in the podcast, but he, he's been struggling. He's 28 and 30, I believe. Mm-hmm. He's been struggling way before the season. Uh, with how Michigan's played, they've been mediocre. They've been, you know, getting nine, ten wins here and there. I don't think you fire Harbaugh after your season. You put him in the hot seat for sure, but I don't think it's fair to fire somebody on a pandemic year. What about you? What do you think? So here's where I draw the difference between South Carolina and Michigan. South Carolina, I think it's more acceptable to go 28 and 30 than to be nine and four at Michigan because Michigan, you've got a storied history to rely on. You've got um, deep roots recruiting as far away as um, Florida and California for big name players. Like that is one of the premier programs in college football. If you can't beat nine wins, then you're having trouble. And if you can't, if you're putting up this kind of an effort, I, I get it. It's a pandemic, but still, this is not the kind of effort that is acceptable for a program like Michigan, South Carolina. You can get away with it because, um, Honestly, that job, in my opinion, is closer to Kentucky than it is to Tennessee. So, you know, different program standards. The one thing I will say, though, is the the biggest problem with Michigan is they're not excelling anywhere. They can't move the ball. They can't stop the ball. And it's been really surprising that given that Jim Harbaugh was an NFL quarterback, he cannot figure out the quarterback position with this, with this Michigan team. At all. And you would think that at some point he would be able to get in some guys who he trusts and who are able to play under his system. He has not really had that his entire tenure at Michigan. And I think that is a major, major flaw with him in this program. Um, Now, firing back to you, do you think Wisconsin is legitimate? Okay, so that's also going to be discussed. But I will say, so – I was looking up the Big Ten, and I saw a lot of calls. Like, there were some Michigan homers saying that, you know, uh, what's his face? Uh, I'm trying to remember the quarterback's name. Uh, It's slipping me right now. Milton? Milton. I I, I was trying to think of Milton for whatever reason that slipped me. Yeah. Weird last name. Uh, But I will say, he was billed as, like, the savior of this program, a Heisman Dark Horse, the best quarterback in Michigan for a while, and – while he went 9-19 and for 98 yards, two interceptions, they had a leading rusher with three carries. They were able to get 219 yards in the game. But this is the kicker to me. Michigan only had the ball less than 20 minutes in that game. You know, I, I think some basketball schools have more uh, time of possession than that. <laughs> their games won 
I think two fires is long. Uh, Wisconsin has shown that they are completely in charge of the Big Ten West. Not seeing how they don't get to the Big Ten championship game. But I will say that Merch struggling shows that he's not really hyped up to be what he was in the game against Illinois. But what I took from this, and I'll ask you this, this is probably the largest dumpster fire I've seen for a college football program for a while now. How would you say they rank up with uh, 2015 Missouri that ended up 5-7 and seven, but with all the racial discriminations and the threat to end play, but still will end up with a better record in Michigan? I'm putting Michigan at three wins right now with one against Rutgers and Penn State. Well, here's the thing, though, with that record for Michigan. you got to factor in that this is a COVID season. So not only are they playing fewer games, they're also getting rid of those um, – uh, powder puff non-conference games that would give them several more wins on the season. So yeah, they might technically finish with a worse record than that Missouri team, but they're still probably a better team. It just COVID isn't going to show that. Um, so I still think that Missouri team is worse and more of a dumpster fire. But this is this is giving LSU a run for their money, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit uh, as well. Um, moving on. Uh, early in the day in the ACC, Miami barely survived at Virginia Tech, 25-24. Uh, this one was kind of a boring game to watch, but I have to say the leadership from Derek King was very impressive uh, for Miami coming down the stretch, being able to score that his first touchdown of the game with six minutes to go in order to win. What, would, what did you see in this one? Well, with Miami, I saw the Hurricanes struggling all night. They allowed De'Ara King to be to become a punching bag, bag literally, allowing for six sacks. There was a particular play in particular that concerns me, though, with Miami's discipline. So, I'm not sure if you watched the game. Did you watch the game? So, I was at Epcot on all day Saturday. So, I wasn't able to like watch anything but what i did do was i was able to follow along on um, college football radio and on um the espn app throughout the day watching different plays watching different drives what have you and i, I saw the final uh drive for miami that gave them the lead on the game cast uh by one able to like actually watch it the one thing that concerned me is uh you're familiar with bubble bullet correct oh yeah so Miami was getting off the field. Virginia Tech threw an errant ball. And Bubba Bolden comes in and just full out decks the QB two seconds already, or two to three seconds after the ball's already out. It takes seven, I think he had like five or six steps when that ball was out. And he still just slammed the crap out of the quarterback. And it was, it was during a very important drive. I think Virginia Tech was in within one possession. And he just slams into the quarterback and gets 15 yard penalty for Virginia Tech still driving. So my concern is, is with this Miami team, is how composed are you? Because you have UNC, you have, oh my gosh, who else? They have UNC, West, and the question is, is, you know, they're they're still kind of in the coastal race. Well, I don't even know if they're doing divisions this year. I think the way the ACC is doing it is they're just oh, yeah, they're not doing in the top divisions. two. 
So it's going to be basically a three-horse race between them, Notre Dame, and Clemson as to who gets those two spots. Yeah, you're right. You're right. They're not doing divisions this year. Uh, but what I was going to say is, is that they're still kind of in the competition, but those middle 15-yard penalties against a better team than Virginia Tech, especially when you're up very little, that's going to come out back and bite you. So I, I honestly, that's my one concern about Miami is how they're able to keep composed. And my official opinion on them, they're still upper mid-tier, and they're able to beat the average ACC team, but not overly excel. What is your thoughts on Miami? I feel like um, I feel like the same way with Miami that I felt, or that I feel with the Seattle Seahawks in the NFL. They have a really good quarterback, and they're letting him cook and do his thing, which which is good, and they need to. But you can't let the guy be the cook, the waiter, the uh, restaurant manager, the accountant, everything above. You can't let him have him do everything for your program. At some point, you got to get a running game. You got to get a defense. You got to have principled play on both sides of the ball. And Miami just isn't having that. And yeah, okay, I know back in the 80s, Miami with their swagger, you know, always had tons of penalties. Here was the thing, though. Those Miami teams were stacked two and three deep at positions with NFL talent. That's not this Miami team. And you can't expect to pull off that kind of behavior with a team that doesn't have that and still be able to win big games. They should have gotten beat at Virginia Tech. They should have been beat at NC State last week. And it's just by the leadership of Derek King down coming down the stretch that they are able to stay and keep winning these games. But whenever they have to face a Notre Dame or a Clemson, or whenever they get to a big bowl game, they're going to get embarrassed because these are the kind of things that come to light in uh, primetime matchups. Speaking of which, Con, I do want to bring it up because like, I, I just remembered that when he said all the penalties. So you know why they don't have microphones down to listen to the players' options anymore in college football? It's because according to the 80s, like ESPN did a 30 for 30 for the 80s hurricane. Mm-hmm. And apparently, they were calling the opponent every single slur word, talking all that mad crap, talking about how they're not about that smoke before not about that smoke was a thing. <laughs> so, so they got it on microphone several times. They're like, dude, we can't, we honestly can't just sit here and let them talk like this to a national audience. But they took the microphones out so they can't hear what they're actually saying to each other on the field. Oh, my gosh, that's great. Uh, keeping with programs like Virginia Tech and Michigan, who are traditionally powers but uh, aren't living up to the hype this year, Penn State is now 0-4 thanks to getting beat by a Nebraska team that is not good. Um, I, this is a major dumpster fire that there again is giving LSU and uh, Michigan a run for their money. Um, where do you <laughs> – what do you even do with this team at this point? Honestly – salvage it, uh, you're going you're gonna to sit there and you're going to tank. Oh, wait, that's not going to work in college. Uh, <laughs> so, honestly, the thing that I took from this game is this game's kind of ironic because you remember in the offseason which two Big Ten schools were calling for the football season the most? Wasn't it Nebraska and Penn State? It was. 
Yeah. And now they might be regretting those wishes. Nebraska appeared ready to blow his team out. They were up, like, huge at halftime. They allowed him to Lions to come back in the game. But can we just admire how two weeks Penn State has outgained the opposition significantly? Like, they were up, they got, I think it was 180 more yards than Nebraska. They outgained Indiana. And they still can't pull it off. Yeah. They can't find the win. I don't understand how that's humanly possible. I'm sure, like, it takes you years and years and years. Maybe you find it back in the 30s the last time that happened. But I, I will state this, and I want your opinion on it. So you remember Adrian Martinez, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, he was on my notes as the only th- uh, halfway decent thing Nebraska's got. <laughs> yeah, and he's no longer starting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, because I was like, do you remember how much hype there was around Martinez? Oh yeah, he was the, supposed the, to be the one to bring Nebraska back. There were like it was I think maybe two years ago. They were hyping this kid off big time. And now he's bench riding. He's <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that he's becoming such a bench expert he can tell us what type of wood the bench is made out of. Oh, Tickery Oak. <laughs> yeah. But I will I'm, I'm gonna say this one thing to you. So I will deem this game the the broken dream bowl because both teams had dreams this season. They tried, they called out. They're like, "Hey, we want this season so bad, we need it." And I know Nebraska needs it for economic reasons. Absolutely devastating between these two. And uh, you know, you remember Shark, Shark Boy and Lava Girl? Yeah. Dream and dream and get us out. Dream, 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 dream. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that season for us like when Shark Boy starts saying trying to uh, get the I think it was like he was having he was having a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> so anyway go on what is your take on this game honestly you said pretty much everything I was going to say this Penn State team I, I don't know where to begin with them because coming into the season they were a top 10 team and there's always a couple teams who you expect to be really good and just aren't. But, good God, this is a dumpster fire. Like, I understand Jeremy Brown had to retire due to having a, a finding a heart issue. But at the same time, you still think you've got Sean Clifford, a quarterback, who's not bad. You've got another running back behind uh, Brown, who's pretty good, and was splitting carries with Brown before Brown retired. Um you had coming into the season a really strong, at least on paper, defense that, yeah, okay, they lost Micah Parsons. Yes, that is a huge loss. It cannot be understated. But that should have only knocked them from great to good, not great to abysmally bad. I don't know what to make of this Penn State team. This is just a really bad year for James Franklin. And, you know, I, I really like Franklin. I think he's a really good coach. But he's got to hope that this is not what happens next year for this uh, Penn State team. Because you, you can get away with it for one season. You can't get away with it for two. Um, one team that uh, we, we didn't know was going to be quite as good as they are, Notre Dame ended up beating Boston, uh, Boston College up at Chestnut Thrill on Saturday, 45-31. 
BC put up a good fight. They hung 31 points on a uh, stingy Notre Dame defense. But at the end of the day, Ian uh, Ian Book and company were just too much. Uh, Book was 20 for 27 through the air for 283 yards and three touchdowns. And he also had 85 yards rushing with a touchdown on the ground. Uh, I was impressed by the balance of this Notre Dame attack. Uh, What would your main takeaway, though? My main takeaway from the game was that, honestly, I, I do think Boston College is a really good team because, you know, they gave pumps in the game as well. They didn't, they didn't like Clemson run out. But my question is, is has Ian Buck found his stride? He went 20 of 28 for 283 yards, three touchdowns with 85 yards on the ground, got another touchdown. But there seems to have been a switch that's flipped for Buck. Instead of playing to not mess things up, he's actually put in a role where he's playing to win games. And this is so essential for Notre Dame as it has a lot, has been a kind of a flimsy defense at times this year. But, like, now a relatively explosive offense, it's, it's very confusing. We did not see this coming after that 12-7 Louisville victory. When was the last time you could think that the Irish were clicking on all cylinders? I'm starting to think that they might not be fraud. I am too, and that's that's the weird thing. Is usually you look at these Brian Kelly Notre Dame teams, and it's like, okay, they can beat teams that they should beat, but whenever they end up facing the big time programs, they falter. That's not the case with this Notre Dame team. They actually look really good, and I, I don't think that Clemson game was a fluke. I, I I feel like this Notre Dame team is by far the best that Kelly's had. And that says a lot, given that he's competed for a national title, not once, but twice with Notre Dame. Um, I, I feel like they are the most complete team on offense. And I feel like their defense does just enough on that side of the ball to be able to get them to uh, win games against big uh, teams. that They wouldn't be able to if it was just their offense. But it, it is kind of remarkable seeing how much of a turnaround they've made from that 12-7 Louisville game, you know, we we thought that they were complete frauds after that, and now we're both looking at them like they could be a national title favorite. Um, moving to keeping it moving it out to the Pac-12 with one of uh, Notre Dame's biggest rivals, USC survived Arizona in their second straight super close game against teams from the Grand Canyon State. Uh, this one, in my opinion, played out a lot like the Arizona State game. Just like in that game, they were down late and they needed to play, and it came down to Kadon Slovis having that veteran leadership that I talked so much about, coming down the stretch and leading them for a, a final drive touchdown with under 30 seconds to go. I was impressed by his leadership, and this is a fun game um, from the Pac-12 that I think is they're not top-heavy, but, boy, they are deep this year. Uh, what did you see in this one that uh, caught your eye? Honestly, Slovis is just a point quarterback. He threw for 25 yards, a touchdown on 30 or 43 passing. And in the last two drives, he was 11 of 12 for 158 yards. That's clutch. You're not gonna you're not gonna find that with every single quarterback when games on the line. However, my concern is with USC is that you know Arizona State supposed to be good. Arizona not supposed to be good. They were heavily favored in this game and still escape on the, like, skin of their teeth? 
I honestly think that USC is just, you know, still trying to figure out exactly who they are. They have all the weapons that they need to be able to succeed. They just don't know exactly how to put them all together yet. Yeah, this is going to be a really fun USC team to keep an eye on. I know that we've made the comment that the Pac-12 season is kind of a joke with only six games, but this USC team is, uh, I think, in my opinion, they're the class of the conference, and uh, they're they're going to be a fun team to watch. Even if they don't win games, they're still going to be entertaining as hell. So definitely a program to keep your eye on as the season goes on. Um, Moving back to the Big Ten, I had a big matchup. For the Big Ten West race, Northwestern beat Purdue at West Lafayette in order to stay unbeaten and move to 4-0 on the season. What was your main takeaway on this one? I got to admit, I was kind of surprised. With Northwestern, I wasn't really surprised. I actually picked them to win the game. It's quite insane to think that the last time, you know the last time that uh, Northwestern was 4-0? Wasn't it like 2000 or something like that? 96, and Pat Fitzgerald was playing linebacker. Yeah, that's what I thought during uh, his playing career. So they controlled the pace throughout the game, which was key, starting off with 14 plays and 75-yard touchdown. Ramud, I don't even know how to pronounce that one, Bowman, had three touchdowns, which were the first of, of his career since 2017. And the Cats kind of struggled with running the football. 39 times and only 83 yards. They will need to pick this up if they're going to be successful in the future. I will, I will say, leading up into this game, Northwestern won their last appearance against Badgers and Evanston, and they're going to hope to repeat, but they're not going to repeat with a performance like this. They just controlled the clock, and that's pretty much how they won the game. Yeah, I, I was surprised. I thought Purdue would be able to put more of an effort forth. And, and the big difference in this game was in the second quarter, Purdue had the ball deep inside their own territory. And Alex O'Connell dropped back to pass, fumbled the ball, Northwestern recovered it, and that set up a touchdown, which ended up being a seven-point swing and in their favor and the difference in seven points. That was the difference in this game. Uh, Peyton Ramsey at quarterback for Northwestern got a big win against his former in-state rival, given that he was the former IU quarterback who transferred Northwestern coming into the season. Uh, and now this Northwestern team is squarely up against Wisconsin. They'll play them this week um, for the Big Ten West title. We have four undefeated teams in the Big Ten right now, and two of them were teams that we would not have expected at this point, Northwestern and Indiana. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how they fare going forward. I'm with you. Their running game definitely has to pick up uh, the slack because uh, they cannot win just on Ramsey himself, especially if they're going to be running the ball 40 times a game. It, you can get away with not having a good running game if you're only running 15 to 20 times a game. But if you're running that much, then you've got to have more efficiency on the ground than just two yards per carry. One team that uh, had a high-flying offense that got completely shut down, SMU got beat by Tulsa in the lone-ranked upset of this week. Uh, this one was kind of surprising because uh, we thought that SMU had the offensive weapons to run all over Tulsa. They did not. Well, I will apologize for Tulsa for saying that they are a one-trick pony. The thing is, I'm going to bring up their UCF game. So they held Gabriel from the UCF night, of course, to 28 of 51 for 330 yards and one touchdown. Now, the yardage in this, the yardage is fine. The fact that they held him to one touchdown is 
concerning 28 of 51 is really kind of kind of bad for Dylan Gabriel's pass percentage. See, the thing is, is I ignored that fact, and they smothered another quarterback who's considered really good in the American Athletic Conference, and Shane Bouchelle, 18 of 36. He was 50 percent for 200 yards and one touchdown. Tulsa is just killing opposing quarterbacks. This is what has allowed them to become a giant killer in their conference. County is thoroughly impressed, and honestly. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think that they might beat Cincinnati in the conference championship game. And that's going to be a huge stats for Ritter right there. In addition, Zach Smith pulled off another spectacular performance going from 26 of 38 for three touchdowns. And it was the third time this season that the Golden Hurricane won after trailing by double digits in the first half. I don't know another team who might have pulled that beat off. Yeah, I gotta say, I've I was uh, quite surprised by this, but I really shouldn't have been. We were saying earlier in the season that we we picked Tulsa to beat Cincinnati, we picked Tulsa to uh, beat someone else. Forget who it was. They almost be Oklahoma State as well. And you know, at the time, those games looked like flukes. But it's becoming more and more apparent that this Tulsa team is legitimate. And it's all thanks to that defense that is able to just shut down high-powered offenses like it's nobody's business. Fortunately for them, they also have a really good quarterback in Zach Smith, as you alluded to. He had 325 yards through the air, and that was just enough for Tulsa to be able to pull off the upset. But this is a much more complete team than a lot of people are thinking right now. So uh, I, I got to give the, all of, uh, props to um, – Tulsa for this win. For our last game of the week, we're better to end it than Florida thumping Arkansas in Felipe Franks' return to the swamp. Uh, the offense was missing Kyle Pitts, but that did not matter at all as the Gators hung 63 points on the Arkansas Razorbacks. Uh, what was your takeaways from this game? Well, I think hanging 63 points, the Gators should have easily done more since Emory played the whole fourth quarter. But I'm going to tell you something. Think, it, think as an Arkansas fan. If I told you that Arkansas would score 35 points, do you think Arkansas had a chance in that game? Just just without any other context, but they would come to the swamp and put up 35. You're an Arkansas fan. Would you have taken that? Yeah. Yeah, I would have. Because, I mean, they held Georgia at 34. So, I'm, I'm just saying that Arkansas had a decent performance. Trask threw the ball incredible, and despite a pick that was the wide receiver's fault, had a rather perfect day. He threw for five touchdowns in the first half alone, and Jones played a good amount in the second half. It's easy to say that Arkansas was completely unmatched, outmatched here, but Felipe showed he came a long way. So I don't know if you have an emotional connection with Felipe at all, as like being a former Gator, but you know, I'd like to see the kids succeed. I do too. Yeah. I always liked him. As as you as you and the longtime listeners of this podcast know, I was always uh, pretty high on Felipe Franks. I always thought he had the raw talent. He just had to put it all together. And you know, I'm 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 rooting for him to have success with Arkansas. See, that's the problem though with uh, Felipe. There is, and it's just he just does not have that game mentally. He doesn't look at the second read. I was watching several film studies, and he he threw. It was on fourth down because you know the Gators are starting to force teams to go on fourth down to keep up. So he had this route. It was a slant route, 
that he had was a linebacker. And Sean Davis completely pulled off the guy in Purvis away that was running right up the sideline doing a fly route. And Sean Davis pulled off of him. So he looks at the slant, sees that it might be there, throws the slant when Sean Davis is just 15 yards away from the guy running the fly route. If he threw it to the fly route, it's a touchdown. Yeah. But he did it because he threw it to the fly route because he's always had that issue analyzing his surroundings. But I will say, he was 15 of 19 for 250 yards before injuring his wrist. I would go as far to say that I'm proud of how far Franklin felt as an individual. And when you think about it, he has significant importance. He might be more significant of a player than a majority of starters. And I'm going to tell you why. He's a quarterback that is seeing two different programs through rebuilding. And he's consistently one of the first players to buy into the system, which is so special. When you have a head coach, you know, the championship years and things, who are their favorite guys? It's the guys who first buy into their system, who believe that they can do great things there. And Felipe has not only started that data revolution by winning the 10 games, winning the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, but he, he, he started the revolution in Arkansas and giving fans hope. When, you know, they were just hoping they were going to get their butts beat by North Texas again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I got I to say, I'm, I'm with you on Franks. And uh, I do think that having a quarterback that is able to buy in week in and week out and doesn't give up on a rebuilding effort, that is really uh, crucial for a team to have someone like that that is in that stage of rebuild. Um, looking at the Gators, though, the offense is incredible, and Kyle Trask might be the Heisman frontrunner at this point. Uh, they, they hung 63 points, and uh, that was without Kyle Pitts, who was a legitimate first-round talent tied in. Instead, Trask was able to uh, throw the ball all over the field, didn't over-prioritize any one receiver, and really made a lot of good reads, good decisions, and was able to keep this offense just ridiculously high-flying. I'm not worried about the defense allowing 35 to Arkansas here uh, because, as we were talking about with Franks' time at Florida, as someone who's a former linebacker, I can tell you that um, a lot of times in practice, you're going to have your first-team defense playing against that first-team offense several times a week during scrimmages, whether it be uh, live, it can be tackle, or it can be two-hand touch or skeleton uh, crew, basically, seven-on-seven. But you're going to be seeing those looks. And if you've seen those for two years in a row, every day in practice, you're going to know when the defense lines up what they're going to be looking to do, and you're going to know how to take advantage of it. So I'm not, I'm not afraid of them giving up 35 points to Felipe. I, I feel like I'm, I'm looking a lot more at the last couple of weeks where after the start uh, of the game against Georgia, they were able to hold them for four to 14 points for most of the game. And that Missouri game is more signs that the defense is progressing instead of having worry that they have fallen back in their old ways with this one. Uh, one final note that I do have on this game, Steve Spurrier, Urban Meyer, and Dan Mullen are all 26-6 and six through their first 32 games with the Gators. That is a great sign for the future of this Gators program. Uh, and just a quick shout-out, this week they played Vanderbilt. Uh, they're a 31, was it 31-point favorite? Yeah. Do you think they cover spread? Uh, I believe that they do. And I'll give you a fun fact. This is the first time 
since 2009 that the Gators had this high of a spread. It was also against Vanderbilt. It was a 34-point spread. But given that it didn't go company with the 2009 Gators, we're going to skip the SEC championship game because that was not the best. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it, it's good company to have. I'm, I'm with you. I think they're going to cover the spread here because, I mean, I, I don't know if Vanderbilt's going to be able to score here. And that's the thing. Florida might be able to hang 60, and I don't think Vanderbilt can hang 20. Moving to the AP poll update for this week. Um, not much to talk about, honestly. The top eight is locked in. Very few changes overall. Uh, Tulsa directly replaced SMU in the poll. And uh, we're starting to get to the time of the year where the playoff poll hype is going to start uh, start uh, whirling up. Do you, How do you think that the playoff poll is going to differ from the AP poll? Drastically. <laughs> the AP, the... Playoff poll, I think it's going to be different in the fact that you're going to see a Florida over Texas A&M. You're going to see, I'm going to say Cincinnati BYU start under Indiana Wisconsin in the Pac-12. Because the, they haven't really been able to show everything that they have. I, I just believe that there is just so... And also, you got to consider how many games these programs have played. So I think that's going to play a factor into who's ahead of who, they have a heck of a job this year with the committee trying to figure out exactly what they're going to do. And I think I'm just going to start the discussion, I guess, something that I'm looking at. So let's say Ohio – I told you about Ohio State is like on the – is like relying on nobody catching COVID or the program doesn't get invaded by COVID. Because if it does, does that shut down their – let's say they don't play another game this – or not another game, but they play two more games this season and you see a 5-0 and Ohio State team. How does a playoff committee judge a 5-0 and Ohio State team against, let's say, a 9-2 and Florida team? While I don't think it's fair, I think that at that point the playoff committee would rely on past performance from this Ohio State team and would put them into the playoff um, because I, I feel like I feel like Ohio State gets the benefit of the doubt given that not only have they been just completely blowing teams out this season, but also it's been a while since they missed a playoff. So I think they would end up getting the benefit of the doubt more than, say, honestly, even a Notre Dame team would. Um, but yeah, it, it's going to be tricky. Um, the only thing I, I agree with you on most of your assessments on the playoff poll and how it will be different, but the one area where I do think it'll be different from what you said, I think Cincinnati's going to be able to hang up there in that top six because they've got some good wins against some AAC schools this year. And I think the committee is going to be factoring that in, given that, you know, they've played more games in the Big Ten. They've played more games in the uh, Pac-12. And they've got some of these solid wins baked into their schedule that are going to inflate them more. And BYU, conversely, with their only big win being against Boise State, they're going to get knocked down a peck. So that, that's my prediction for the update. Moving on. Uh, to our storylines of the week, we've got a COVID update for you. First, the ACC is d- doing a lot of reshuffling with Miami. 
the Hurricanes, who played Virginia Tech last weekend without 13 players and was on the brink of postponing that game, had subsequent positive tests and uh, contact trace quarantines as a result of Sunday's testing. They will not play the following two weeks. In adherence with campus protocols, Miami has adjusted football activities this week to social distance conditioning to meet the health and safety needs of the team. Their scheduled game against Georgia Tech for this Saturday is now on December 19th, the same day as the ACC championship game. If they play in the ACC championship game, this game is going to get canceled. Uh, Their November 28th game at Wake Forest is now scheduled for December 5th. The game against UNC that was going to be December 5th got moved to the 12th. To accommodate those games, Wake Forest will now play Louisville uh, on November 28th, a week earlier than scheduled. UNC will play Western Carolina on December 5th, a week earlier than scheduled. And Louisville will play Boston College on December 12th, moved back from November 27th. Uh, Additionally, we had our first um, Sunday college football game of the year as Cal and UCLA played at the Rose Bowl on Sunday. UCLA won 34-10. And then... Recent news, Louisiana's game was getting postponed, and Kansas versus Texas is being postponed. So, um, what are your thoughts on the updates for um, uh, to the college football schedule for right now, especially with that Miami reshuffling? I mean, Miami loses all the benefit of the doubt because this is something I'm concerned about. Is teams making up the COVID dates and the other team getting a buy into the conference championship game? and what that bye week can do for that team. Because, you know, spending two weeks analyzing a team is a lot better than spending one week. Uh, if, you're, if you're using it wisely. Mm-hmm. With Miami getting shifted, it's just going to be kind of a, I guess, a pain. Especially since Georgia Tech is kind of an easy win. And the fact that you rescheduled Georgia Tech on the, uh, on the ACC championship game, you're, you know, let's say you make it and get blown out by Clemson, you don't have that win in the stat pile for the recruiting. Because I'm not sure if you if you realize this, but in-person recruiting visits are not happening this year. Right. So the only thing they have to justify watching or why or if they want to go to the school is this academic admission you know because players really care about that <laughs> yeah um, Cardell Jones over here I didn't come here to play school <laughs> now he's a master's degree he has more education than you caught <laughs> well technically you haven't graduated from your master's program yet either so he's got more education than both of us <laughs> but uh <laughs> three weeks. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm going to say that, uh, where was I going with that? You know, the uh, the academics typically don't matter. They're not going to be having it on their on-campus visit, so that's going to hurt big time because they're not going to be able to feel the culture of the campus and how they feel. Things like they go off on off-campus results. And they're not going to see that win that Miami gets if they go to Georgia Tech. If they get to the ACC championship game, they're just going to get blown out. So I think it's just better for Miami, maybe, if they don't even make it that far. But I'm going to say that with recruiting this season, it, it, it makes all the games you play that much bigger. And the fact that your games are being impacted by COVID and you might lose a win, I can see that being a problem for Miami in the future. 
Yeah, the the other thing I think is going to be a big problem is all of a sudden that UNC game is is all of a sudden a trap game because they're going to have to play Carolina the week before the ACC championship game. What happens if, for some reason, Notre Dame drops a game? Miami is looking at this thing, oh boy, we might have a shot to be in the ACC championship game. They get caught looking ahead and UNC upsets them. All of a sudden, their season is on a completely different trajectory. And I don't think they'd be having that problem if they played in December 5th. So I I think it's going to be really interesting to follow this Miami team and see how they're able to adjust just to that. Um, Also worth noting, UNC will be coming into that game basically with a bye week because they will play Western the week before. And Western is a bad FCS school. So... um, I think that's going to be something that's going to be really interesting to follow. Uh, moving on, <laughs> we're going to have a really fun discussion here. Um, Will Muschamp got fired at South Carolina. I got to say, I did not see this one coming. I knew he was on the hot seat. I didn't think he'd get uh, fired in the middle of the season. Um, he allowed 59 points to Ole Miss on Saturday night, which was the uh, undoing of his program. He is he had the same problems he did at Florida. Uh, his defense was good for a while. Offense couldn't get it together, and then the defense just fell off. Um, before we get into the uh, pure speculation, uh, do you have any thoughts on him getting fired? Uh, I want him as defensive coordinator, but I'm going to throw in a stat there for you. South Carolina's total defense this season was 12 at C. Do you think he's still a better defense coordinator possibility than Grantham? Yes. Would you hire Dan or Dan? Well, would you hire Muschamp in a second if given the opportunity to become a defense coordinator? Yes. All right. Sounds like we want him. Uh, with the candidacy, I'm I'm interested to hear what you're going to say about this. Why don't you tell me what you think? Just specifically tell me what you think South Carolina wants in a candidate, and then go into your candidate. I think that South Carolina is going to look for somebody. They, they went after the big, flashy hire the last two times. And with Spurrier, it worked. With Muschamp, it didn't. Um, I think they're going to go with a different approach here. And instead of going for someone with big-name experience, they're going to go for someone that's done some success at a smaller school. And for that reason, my guess is they're going to stay in state and pick off the coach from uh, the coach from Coastal Carolina. Interesting take. So I'm going to tell you several things that I think South Carolina could look for. So my first thing is is the auto factor. I, I took this from another podcast, but I really liked it. So do you remember when Lane Kevin was? hired by Ole Miss. What was your first reaction? Oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> exactly. See, Lane Kiffin strikes the fear into it. You want to strike the fear because we know what Lane Kiffin capable of. He put up so many points against Florida. He put so many points up against Alabama. It made defense look like it was optional. Let me say this. That was not the only reason why I said, oh boy, here we go again when Lane Kiffin got hired. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, he was just trying to sleep with somebody else's daughter. Yeah, Nick Saban's daughter, while he was the offensive coordinator at Alabama. I, I don't 
Well, I'm just going to go out. I'm, I'm just going to go out ahead and say we're in the full on rumor mill portion. Why don't we just go ahead and say it? He tried to sleep with Nick Saban's daughter. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, it's the uh oh factor. Second of all, is I, I kind of I call this the James Franklin effect. So you remember how good Vanderbilt was under Franklin? Like they were getting scary. They were nine three. Yeah. Yeah. Before he got poached away, I think South Carolina wants to find somebody like the Sam Pittman. Their dream job is to coach for South Carolina. They're not going to be poached away. I don't think if Arkansas starts winning championship or, you know, get it, start competing, I don't think you can poach Sam Pittman away because it's his dream job. Right. So that's my second requirement for it. It's, it has to be their dream job. It has to be an uh-oh factor. Now, I saw a name today, and I kind of laughed at it being thrown out there. You know you know who I saw thrown out there? Matt Steve Wayne? Sarkeesian. Steve Steve Sarkeesian. Ooh. Ooh, I like that. Well, as a fellow alcoholic, I'm sure you'd like that. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had a much higher shot. That was a good um, one. <laughs> I'm actually, I actually kind of like the thought of Billy Napier, which is the favorite right now, not very creative. But he has said that South Carolina is one of his dream jobs. Coaching the SEC is one of his dreams. And he said that he wants to play in the East because, you know, it's easier to build a program up in the East than it is in the West. I like, I like that name. I saw Hugh Breeze being thrown around, but I don't think Hugh Breeze is going to material materialize. That would be what, fun. I think it'd be fun. I still think it'll materialize. When I think of South Carolina, I kind of feel like they like I feel like that aristocratic, classy program, or at least wanting to be that. That's why I can't see Hugh Freeze getting the hiring job there due to scandal. Well, you said no oh factor like Lane Kiffin. If you hire Sarkeesian or Hugh Freeze, you got it. You got an uh oh factor. And the other guy I saw, Jeff Monken. Oh, God. What do you think about that one? <laughs> pass. You're going to pass on that? Yeah. I mean. Betting odds are 5 and 1. I mean. I mean, it's not that it's not that he wouldn't be a, a fit at South Carolina. It's just I'm not a fan. And then we have well, who you picked, Jamie Chadwell, as an option. Mm-hmm. But I think the only the only other ones I'm saying that aren't head coaches being thrown around is Brent Venables, okay, and Tony Elliott, okay, both from Clemson. So with those offensive hires or with those hires. I kind of, I kind of like the Louisiana Lafayette hire, but it can go any way. I just, I, I think my points are is that you need somebody that goes uh oh factor, makes people start eyeing them and not passing them over, and you, and, and you just need to find somebody that's going to be there for the long haul because you know as soon as, soon as James Franklin left, everything went to crap in Vanderbilt very fast. Yeah. Now, let's get real fun here. Where do you think Muschamp goes? 
I want him as a Florida defense coordinator. I do too. And honest to God's truth, if I'm Dan Mullen, I'm calling him this second and seeing if he can come in and be a quote unquote analyst. Because we've seen that happen where guys get immediately hired as like a, a, a special consultant or an analyst or something. I, I'm seeing if Muschamp wants to move to Gainesville like tonight. Is uh, Muschamp, has Muschamp attended the rehabilit- Nick Saban's rehabilitation clinic before? Not yet, but he did attend Mac Brown's uh, coaching tree or coaching clinic. I, I can see him becoming an Alabama <laughs> coaching clinic, go back to the next saving and rehabilitation clinic. Or maybe, you know, they're getting sick of uh, Jim McElwain up in Central Michigan and they want to hire Muschamp. That would be funny. That would be funny. Uh, moving on to our storylines of, of this week, you've got one that's very pertinent tonight with the NBA draft. Uh, tell us more about Anthony Edwards' story. You mean Lil Hoopster? Uh, Anthony Edwards is it's kind of funny so I I said it was a Twitter thing earlier to God but it wasn't it was an interview so I'm going to read some direct quotes to the interview and it's just like it's just what happens when you allow uneducated athletes to speak and they just can't they're they're not very eloquent in their speech so they don't really get the gist of what they want but what Edwards said when he was being interviewed by Alex Scarborough he said, I'm still not really into sport, into it, referring to basketball. I love basketball. Yeah, basketball is my heart. But football is where I started, so I'll never forget about that. But don't get me wrong. Basketball is my number one because I feel like it's going to get me through a lot of stuff I need to go through. It's just what I do. It's a job. I feel like I'm working right now. And then when he when asked to clarify, his trainer he said, you know, what he meant was, was he, he isn't a fan of watching basketball games like he is football. When it comes to football, Edward believes that it gives athletes more freedom to celebrate. So this is what Edward said on that. He said, you can do anything on the field. You can spice the ball. You can dance. You can do all the disrespectful stuff you want. In the NBA, you can't do any of that. You'll get fine. So I'm like, uh, I... I I'm kind of dumbfounded that he said all these things right before he gets drafted. And on top of that, he even mentioned, he goes like, you know, if basketball doesn't work out for me, my real passion also is music. You know, I'm not a Dame Willard. I'm a little baby. Oh, God. Did he actually say that? Compared his rapping to little baby. Oh, and, good Lord. And I'm sitting here, and I'm just like... You know, you have million dollars on your freaking day. This is literally, okay, I think it's disrespectful for him to say this because you know how many inner city kids, just kids in general, that dream of this moment of being taken number one in the NBA draft and for him to kind of crap on this? It's just kind of ridiculous. And, you know, his money that he might make might have significantly went down because uh, I forgot who it was. Oh, geez. Who was the player that was always white? I think it was Barkley. I think it was Barkley, who they always question his work ethic and if he really, truly loved the game of basketball. No, 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 no. You're thinking of Anthony Bennett. The bust? The bust for the Cavs? Yeah. Yeah, that was Anthony Bennett. I'm just... 
I'm thinking of like the, I think it's a soccer player that they're like, oh, you know, if he applied himself, he'd be the best in the world. But I can't remember his name right now. But essentially, they're worrying. I would worry about Edwards' dedication to the game. Yeah, I gotta say, this whole story it is it is just wild. It shows what happens when you put nineteen year olds who uh, don't really know what they're doing yet in life in front of a microphone on the biggest night of their life and. Just let them have at it. Uh, I I don't even know where to begin with this story. Um, I will say, both times you've told me, I've been laughing for five minutes. I've been laughing silently, but I've been laughing for five minutes with you telling the story. Um, yeah, uh, this, is, this is a lot to cover. Um, you know, I... I understand him liking to watch football and we like to watch football and we have our own day jobs, but you never want to say that, that the NBA is like your day job on the night you're projected to be the number one draft pick. I, I got to say, man, I, this is just unbelievable. And, and you, you, the funny thing is too, he made the comment about the celebrations. And in my mind, I'm seeing Allen Iverson stepping over Tyron Lue and thinking, you can still disrespect him without getting fined. <laughs> I just, I don't see, I think that just speaks to his immaturity level. Yeah, it does. But there again, he's also 19 years old. A lot of athletes have that problem. And that's one good thing that's about, uh, one good thing about college football is, you don't come out in the draft until you're 22, 23. You have a couple of years to form and become an adult. You don't get that with basketball. Yeah, you, you kind of have to deal with uh, the issues that they come with and exactly what you're going to do. But, you know, I'm looking for that collab tape, Dame, Dame Time with uh, Anthony Edwards, a.k.a. Little Baby, a.k.a. Little Hoopster. I think we know what our outro music is going to be. We're going to play some Little Baby. <laughs> All right, I'm down. <laughs> um, my story of the week is a little bit more serious, but it has to do with the uh, issues uh, of players and immaturity and what have you, and programs trying to cover it up. But we're also going to parlay it into a discussion that we've been teasing for weeks, and that's going to be really fun. So, my story on the serious side. LSU was aware of multiple sexual assault claims made against former football players and ignored them over several years, according to a report from USA Today. The report states a total of nine players have had allegations and complaints of sexual misconduct or violence against women since Edward John took over the program in September 2016. A member of the LSU diving team reported to the LSU administration that running back Darius Geis, who played for the Tigers in 2015 and 2017, raped her friend at a party in the spring of 2016. This comes after a report surfaced in August that uh, he did the same to two women in that same year. It is unclear whether the member of the diving team is one of those women. It was the first of several allegations against guys that the administration ignored, according to the report. A women's tennis player reported a second allegation against guys in 2017. The two other women uh, told administrators, or two other women told administrators, guys took a new fo nude photo of one of their friends at a party and shared it with members of the LSU football staff. The report states that LSU did not follow the proper protocols in all instances, which allowed guys to continue to play. 
Uh, the report also indicates at least seven LSU officials were aware of multiple other instances involving other LSU players, including former wide receiver Drake Davis, who was allegedly abusive towards his girlfriend. The woman told police that six instances of abuse took place starting in May 2017, according to the report. He was arrested in August 2018 for dating violence and uh, submitted from the team. He was arrested one month later after allegedly violating court order and uh, continued to assault his girlfriend. Uh, a couple other players are also mentioned, uh, former running back Tate Robbins, linebacker Jacob Phillips, and tight end Zach Scheffler, as well as an allegation against uh, safety Grant Delpit, in which he was allegedly recorded a woman during sex without her permission and shared it with others. Delpit denied the allegations and none of the players were disciplined by the school. The full investigation by US, uh, USA Today also details several instances of administrators ignoring allegations against non-athletes. So, first off, um, th- we've seen problems like this before. It's just this time it's happening with LSU, where coaches cover up illegal activity for their uh, players. Uh, one that immediately comes to mind is Florida State with Jimbo Fisher. Why do you think it is that it used to be that players would get suspended and kicked off teams for this kind of activity. Why do you think it is that coaches are so willing to defend their players now? And why do you think can be done to solve that problem? Well, you've seen the haunted ground, correct? Yeah. I think it's an institutional problem. I agree. It's the university as a whole, because if you watch the haunted ground, you come to realize that schools hide the rate numbers because they want more admissions and there's so much money in it. There is so much money in Jameis Winston. There is so much money in the LSU Tigers. There is so much money in college football. I think I was watching the 150 documentary the other day. They said the $5 billion industry a year. Oh, I believe it. There's just so much money wrapped up in it that... People lose their morals. And honestly, if it happened to my program, I would want it reported. I would I would want to see, you know, it, it hits different. I don't know uh, how it hits for you, but as an older brother, because you got to keep in mind, these girls are somebody's sister. Yeah. These girls are somebody's daughter. And they're having these life-altering things and the mental psyche damage that comes with these actions and for the fact that these predators are paraded around like dice was huge for LSU football. The fact that these predators are just being paraded and acting and making millions of dollars in the NFL and those actions do not affect them at all and that they're able to get away with it really speaks to to everything or to that athletes can achieve above the law. If you are a public figure, the law can't stop you. And I think, honestly, it's kind of disgusting that we value football over our sister, our mother, our our sister, our cousins, our daughters. We're valuing football players and a prestige over those individual people as a whole, and it's kind of I've got to agree with you, and it is all about money. A lot of these programs that, you know, you think about coaches like Bobby Bowden and um, um, 
how they would kick off players for um, illegal contact or what have you and how it's changed. And, and it is really unfortunate um, to see what has happened uh, to the sport, to the industry, because that doesn't happen anymore. And it is a lot due to the money. Unfortunately, when coaches are being paid $5 million, $6 million, $8 million a year, they don't want to suspend star players because it's going to impact their ability. Um, so, yeah, it, it is um, it is pretty sad to see it. Um, we are going to take this, though, and go into a conversation we, we have been teasing for weeks. Um and it, I mean, we don't have to go super in depth with it, but it is something that's funny. So part of this dates back to last year. And of course, LSU won the national title last year. One, it also mentioned that LSU had done some in, in core investigations and it mentioned Odell Beckham paying money to um, players at the, at the national championship game last year. So, with LSU having such a bad year this year, uh, we wanted to go over uh, fall-offs of programs from one year to the next for um, worst program fall-offs. Is this the worst program drop-off that you can remember for a national Uh, champion? I've done a little bit of research for it, so I got... But I think the only person that can really compete is in the modern era. In the modern era. Is 2011 Auburn? Yeah. After losing Cam Newton to the NFL, they played the toughest SEC West ever, arguably. And, you know, they lost. When you say a one-man team, that was pretty much Cam Newton. So, he left. Auburn went 8-5 and in 2011 and went... Three and nine in 2012, Chizik losing or getting fired within two years after winning a national championship. What is, do you remember, do you want to have a number one? So they didn't win the national title, but they played in the national title game, and I think they would have won had it not been for a crucial injury in the title game. I want to talk about 2009 Texas. Because 2009 Texas, they went to the national title game against Alabama. They were undefeated at the time, had Colt McCoy, and they uh, they were the favorite to win the game. And then Colt McCoy got hurt early on, and they had to put in, I want to say it was Garrett Gilbert that came into the game. And... Uh, they obviously at that point just had no chance to win. The next year, um, they completely fell off because a lot of their uh, players that were key members on that team left, and they went 5-7 and seven the following year, didn't even make a bowl game. It was their first losing season since 1997, and if I remember right, that was the last year for Mac Brown with Texas. So... Yeah, they didn't win the national title. That's obvi- that is always the one that comes back to me for teams that got that far and then just completely fell off the cliff next year. And with both of these teams, what we're looking at is the same problem that we're looking at with LSU. 
They just lost too many players. You can recruit four stars and five stars all you want, but at some point you just lose too much. And that's what happened to these teams. Also, I'm just going to throw in a classic one for you. 1967 Michigan State. So, Michigan State was a two-time defending national champion. And they entered the season ranked number three, but were upset at home by Houston at 37-7 beatdown. The season developed from there, and the Spartans were only able to manage three wins against teams with losing records. So from back-to-back defending national champions to three and seven. Wow. Wow. I think that might take the cake. Yeah, I, th- I, think, that, I think that takes the cake. Well, moving on, uh, we've got a really interesting game slate for this week. Um, we we only we 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 tried to get down to five games. We end up having seven, and we could have easily had more. Uh, so these are just the seven that we settled on to try to go over. Some of these is big games. Some of them is very tricky lines. So without further ado, let's get to it. This our bread and butter, our game picks. Um, first off, Indiana. Is traveling to Ohio State this week. They are a 20 and a half point underdog. Do you think Indiana covers that spread or do you think Ohio State wins by three plus touchdown? I'm going to ask you a question. If I told you the Hoosers beat Ohio State, would you be like shocked? I'd be surprised, but I wouldn't be shocked. See, it wouldn't be the biggest shock if that happened. Yeah, Both exactly. Are just stopping the run game this year. And essentially, it all comes down to who has the better quarterback. The Hoosers are averaging only 2.6 yards per carry, which will not build well. For Ohio State, this is probably the best defensive front that they have faced all year, and their run game is also struggling. I will say that Fields is the obvious selection for the best quarterback in this matchup. However, there is a chance with Ohio State that he has an off game. And you know how Fields used to be very turnover prone. Mm-hmm. That could return. I believe that Penix Jr. is being asked to shoulder a very large load. When I think about it, it's probably even larger a load if Ian Book had to be Clemson. If he even just wants a shot, not to win, but a shot to beat Ohio State. With that being said, I think Indiana does enough to get there to cover. Yeah, I, I'm with you on this one. I think Indiana definitely covers. Um, Ohio State is going to win this game. However, Indiana is a very good team, and people should take them a lot more seriously. Don't just factor in, oh, this is IU. Factor in that this is a team with a good quarterback in Michael Penix and a good defense, which is a proven formula for winning big-time games. Justin Fields at this point has fewer um, – or has, uh, I want to say it's fewer incompletion. I'm trying to remember what, I forget what it is. Fields is going off this season. But (laughs) I wanted to say it was fewer, um, I want to say he doesn't have an an interception and like has fewer carries or fewer incompletions and carries or something like that. Like, it, it's insane the kind of numbers he's putting up. He's basically like what RG3 was, your RG3 won the Heisman. But at the same time, he hasn't been tested really to this point. Um, but at the same time, Indiana's defense, they, they're they going to be able to provide a test. I think they're going to be able to pick off fields. Yeah, 
at least once. And while I do think Ohio State wins this game, that 20-and-a-half number is way too high. So I'm going to pick Indiana to cover the spread. Moving to the game that is uh, local and important to you, Cincinnati is traveling to UCF this Saturday and will play at the Bounce House. Cincinnati is a six-point uh, six favorite. Do you think they cover the spread, or do you think UCF pulls off the shocker? Uh, the roles kind of have been reversed for UCF this season. This is the first year that the American has went divisionless. And with two losses, it would take a miracle for a night to find a way to the conference championship game. Cincinnati's coming into this game with a focus on just getting by. They find themselves in the same scenario as UCF, hoping that they undefeated and enough chaos occurs for them to get into the playoffs. This is probably the third time we will see this, this year an elite offense going against an elite defense. We saw it with Florida, Georgia. We saw it with Alabama, Georgia. Never going to see it against UCF since However, this time I will be choosing the better defense. Cincinnati has a physical front seven and ball hawk against every wide receiver. They have an offense that thrives off their defense and has been blowing every, out everyone in their path. UCF is just not there this year, and I worry about the chemistry issues. Easy wins against Tulane and Temple are not going to be enough to unify the team again. At this point, you have to ask about their motivation, and it's just to spoil his rival season. I don't think that's enough of a reason since he beat UCF. I've got Cincinnati here as well. Uh, I think it's a key that the number is six because a one-touchdown win gives you the victory on this line. Cincinnati has a crushing defense, and while Dylan Gabriel has been good for most of the season, he also has been known to have some games that just leave you scratching your head. And I think that the Cincinnati Bearcat defense is definitely good enough to limit that UCF offense. Um, con- by contrast, Des Ritter is a very good quarterback for Cincinnati, and I have no faith at all in this UCF defense. I, I think that the veteran leadership by Ritter is going to give them the ability to make plays in this game, and I've got the Cincinnati Bearcats winning this and covering the spread. Moving to the Big 12, we have a big game uh, for what could end up being the number two um, or the second team in the um, – uh, Big 12 championship game. Kansas State is traveling to Iowa State. Iowa State is an 11-point favorite. Do you think Kansas State covers the spread, or do you think Iowa State wins big? So, Kansas State will cover the spread, but I'm going to go with the Ohio- Iowa State outright. Brees Hall has hit the 100-yard mark in every game. That's officially ran for 1,000 yards last week. I'm going to say something, Todd. This is like, I think this is the only season where you can have a 100-yard game every single week running the football and not be in a Heisman conversation. Yeah. They have been able to run against everyone. The wake I would say controls the clock, it would be it could be a death knell for the Wildcats. The Wildcats are the last and first down in the Big Twelve, failing to convert thirty percent of its chances in last in three of the last four games. The Cyclones will just run the football, control the clock, and choke out the Wildcats and get the win. So I'm actually going to go different from you here. I've got Iowa State covering the spread. Kansas State is reeling right now. They can't move the ball without having a good run game. And that's going to be a big problem against an Iowa State team that has a sneakily good run defense, holding teams to 108 yards per game on the ground. Also, worth noting, in Kansas State's last four games against teams not named Kansas, they've had 37 drives with four 
four touchdowns and six turnovers. That is not what you want going up against Brock Purdy, who might legitimately be the best quarterback in the Big 12. If you, if you cannot have that kind of an offensive day and expect to get in the shootout, which is what Iowa State wants to do, and be able to win. So I, I've got Iowa State. I think they're going to be able to pile on the points here. They might get the 40 or 50, and I don't know if Kansas State can break 30. Moving to the SEC, we have what, honest to God's truth, might be one of the trickiest lines of the week. Tennessee at 2-4 and four is traveling to face the ranked Auburn Tigers. Auburn, though, is a 10.5-point favorite, meaning that the 3, the 7, and the 10 are both being given up if you bet Auburn to cover the spread. Do you think Auburn still covers, or do you think Tennessee doesn't? Well, to begin, do you know who's taking – they were talking about moving the Tennessee-Auburn game to the free 30 spot, but yes, that's not how it works. You can't just do that because originally it's supposed to be Ole Miss and Texas A&M. Do you know who takes over the 30-30 CBS spot? I have no idea. San Diego State versus Nevada. Play the SEC music. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. So anyway, they're they have been initiated into the SEC. Uh, <laughs> I think the line is way too low. If Auburn comes out and takes care of business like they they get all of you. It's been three weeks since that point, though. Auburn comes alive when their season is in jeopardy. This is historic. And with escapes without a blemish to Arkansas and Mississippi, both games they should have arguably lost, they host Tennessee. Now, the thing that matters to me the most about this is the fact that Auburn's kind of still alive. And that's, that, that's huge for them. And they could have easily just been killed, simply, just their season destroyed. Their last outcoming against LLC was an absolute slaughter, begging to ask the question, is this the Auburn we will see? And on the other hand, with Tennessee, Jeremy Pruitt just does not have a clue what he's doing with quarterback. You know it's bad when even the head coach is standing there scratching his head, wondering, um, do I like Garantano or do I not like Garantano? <laughs> uh, but the thing that I've seen is that Jeremy Pruitt's like, oh, yeah, our offense has been clicking on all cylinders practice. I'm wondering, do they have people like me out there practicing with them? Uh, <laughs> anyway, Auburn's winning this game, and they're going to cover the spread. So I've got Auburn here as well. I hate this line. Do not bet it because giving up to three, the seven, and ten, those are key numbers that you never want to give up on a betting line. I, I'm not sold on this Auburn team at all. I don't think they should be ranked. But here's the thing, though. Tennessee is in a tailspin right now. They have lost four straight games. And they cannot figure out the quarterback situation at all with Guarantano. Personally, Guarantano should have been benched about a month ago. But for some reason, they're still starting him anyway. Um, this might be where, the game where he ends up being benched. Uh, I, I am going to go with Auburn, but I hate this line. Moving on, we have a big battle for the Big Ten West supremacy with Wisconsin traveling to Evanston, Illinois to face the Northwestern Wildcats. Uh, this is a top 20 matchup. Do you think that uh, Wisconsin ends up winning as a seven and a half point favorite and covering that spread? Or do you think Northwestern ends up uh, covering and potentially pulling off the upset here? 
Well, you see, this is kind of another ideology game, right? Mm-hmm. Between the offense and the defense. So, OK State has built their team defensively so that they can match up against anyone in their conference. And for the most part, they have been able to do that. The Sooners. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wisconsin Northwestern. Wisconsin Northwestern. Oh, we can edit that. I, I heard it wrong, man. Sorry. Yeah, Wisconsin yeah, I'm, Northwestern. I'm spoiling it. <laughs> um, so, I personally believe that Wisconsin's overrated against the win here. They thoroughly dominated Michigan and have taken the wind out of their sails. However, the merch candidacy is officially dead after a lackluster showing against the Wolverines. And this game also leads me to believe that Wisconsin can virtually be put in a position where they are a one-dimensional team. Northwestern's game is simply ground and pound. The goal is to keep their offense on the field with the long-sustaining drives with the run game. They aim to eat possession and limit how many you get per game. So if you start missing possession, not scoring, they're going to wear you out, take the clock, and outscore you. However, in the long run, Wisconsin is just simply a better team and will get the job done with Wisconsin covers. I'm going to go different from you here. I've got Northwestern with that seven-and-a-half-point hook. Northwestern has a bend-don't-break defense and a good quarterback in Peyton Ramsey, which can shorten the length of the game, shorten possessions, and they're optimist, uh, opportunistic and good at making the most of what they're given. Wisconsin has won two blowouts, but they haven't really been tested yet, in my opinion. Most notably, Wisconsin has only won once in Evanston since 2000, which is kind of surprising when you think about it, given that uh, Pat Fitzgerald hadn't even been the coach that long. But that proves well for the Wildcats here. I feel like even if they don't win, they're going to cover that spread. This is going to be a close, drag-out, uh, bare-knuckle brawl game. I've got the Wildcats here. Moving on to the game that you just tried to predict, uh, we've got Bedlam this week in our primetime slot on ABC. Oklahoma State is facing Oklahoma. Oklahoma State is a seven-point underdog, or Oklahoma State is a seven-point underdog despite being the higher-ranked team in this one. So, do you think that the offense in Oklahoma prevails, or do you think the defense in Oklahoma State prevails? Well, I already kind of gave you a teaser. So, yeah. I already said that the teams are built for different purposes. And when I'm looking at this Oklahoma team, I'm no longer really factoring their losses because they're still trying to figure out who they were with the uh, mumble rapper quarterback they have there. Uh <laughs> He does look like a mumble rapper low-key a little bit. He does. He looks like if Charlie Villanueva had hair. I'm sitting here, and I'm like, dude, I can see him easily being like a sad boy rapper. He he, he looks like a poor man's Patrick Mahomes. He, he looks like when you order Patrick Mahomes on Witch.com. Yikes. <laughs> uh, sounds like he's been burnt by Witch several times. Anyway, <laughs> I'm no longer looking at the losses to the Sooners. Since they were over a month ago, and they've had, to, they've been able to clean it up. Their offensive struggle. They have had time against Texas, TCU, Kansas, and Texas Tech to get everything going. And that stretch, they have averaged forty and a half points per game. This is my main argument: with the Sooners finding their offense, OK State has seemed to have lost theirs. Sanders struggled against Kansas State and been relatively unheard. And I don't think I've ever seen a former Heisman candidate come back 
the following year and get as little buzz as he has. I'm not sure if you agree with that sentence yeah. or not. Yeah. They haven't beat the Sooners since 2014. I believe Oklahoma covers. Can you remember another Heisman who hasn't gotten this, who came back and just like completely stunk on the Heisman buzz? I, I cannot. I honestly cannot. And honestly, I'm going to pick Oklahoma State here to cover that spread. I think they're going to win that right. These teams are pretty even in terms of common opponents. And people are giving Lincoln Riley at home the Sooners the uh, edge uh, due to recent games. Here's the thing, though. Spencer Rattler is inexperienced. This is his first year as a starting quarterback. He has never faced uh, Oklahoma State. He's never been in this rivalry game before. Meanwhile, Sanders, uh, Spencer Sanders and Chuba Hubbard have several games under their belt in this rivalry. In my opinion, that is going to make a huge difference. Also, with the game being in Norman, that would usually tilt things pretty substantially in the Sooners' favor. But remember, no fans at games or a limited capacity at games. It's kind of hard to rile up the crowd like you would for you know, 90,000, 100,000 people whenever you've got 20,000 in the stands. Um this one comes down to the fact that, in my opinion, the balanced offense of Oklahoma State can match up with Oklahoma, but they have a much better defense to go along with that offense. This one's going to come down the wire, but I think the Pokes pull it off. For our final game, we have a 10-30 kickoff this week, and what will be a fun one to stay up late for, USC is traveling to Utah, and what will be Utah's first game of the season. Uh, usually, Rice-Eccles Stadium is a tough place to play, but with limited capacity, we'll see how it goes. USC is a three-point favorite. Do you think they end up winning and covering, or does Utah end up winning their first game of the year? Well, you see, this is something that I've done all year. Utah is finding themselves playing the Trojan in their first game of the year. I think this has to be the first time a school has played three opponents for the first first game of the year since maybe the barnstorming era when they used to ride the trains across the country to play a football game. In addition, this will be the last time USC will leave the Southern Cal area. So how do I think this game's going to fall? I think Kelton Slovis will continue to sling the ball around and make plays. But what I want to see is the Trojans put it all together to reach their full potential. I'm picking the Trojans because they are in different times of their season. USC has had chances to see what they can do and fix their issues for the last two weeks and know how to respond to adversity. With Utah, this is a litmus test. It's probably the biggest game in the Pac-12 South that might, or not, since there's no Pac-12 this year or divisions. It's a big game. They have no preparation. I think USC will find a way to slip through again in a very close game. I've got USC here as well. We know what to make of USC. They have the leadership of Kadon Slovis. But at the same time, we don't know what to make of Utah yet. They lost starting quarterback Tyler Huntley and starting running back Zach Moss off of last year's team. And those are big things to replace. That was basically their entire offensive production from last year. Uh, USC last year was able to beat a better Utah team on a Friday night at the Coliseum in L.A. I think that, the yes, leaving Southern California is going to be hard, but not having fans in the stands is going to limit how much of a home environment Utah is able to get. For that reason, I think that USC goes to Salt Lake and they make it two in a row against this Utah Utes team. They end up winning, and I think they end up winning comfortably. Well, that's all the time we have here. Thank you very much for joining us this week. I'm Justin Cox. And I'm Brian Williams. And we are the Between the Uprights College Football Show.